All right, hello and welcome to Realcom's first in a three-part next-gen smart building series. The webinars are back following a short break in June for the conference event that was great, by the way. I'm Chuck Nicewanger, president of NiceNets Consulting, your Realcom host for today's webinar, Defining the Smart Building of Tomorrow. Thank you for tuning into the live session or viewing as a recording. We've been talking about smart buildings for years, but I do caution you to listen for a slight shift towards smarter buildings in these conversations. But before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience. Thank you again to our live attendees. We do encourage you to use the Q&A box at the bottom left of your screen to submit questions or comments. We'll try to get to all the questions, but if we don't get answered during the webinar, we will follow up with you once the event is concluded. You'll find today's presentation along with the presenter bios in the handout section of the GoToWebinar control panel. And for the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos. Don't watch Stranger Things when your building operation seems like they're in the upside down. Watch us, you'll learn a lot more. And if you are experiencing technical issues with that connection or the sound or video quality, the best thing to do is to disconnect and click on the webinar link again. And you can also email Ian at ithompson, that's I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N at realcom.com for help during the event. But don't worry, you won't miss anything since you'll be receiving a link to the webinar recording in the next few days. This educational webinar is supported by our outstanding sponsor. Corning is a company that is vital to progress in multiple industries, including life sciences, mobile consumer electronics, optical fiber, wireless technologies, and so much more. To give you an idea of their many advancements in technology, check out the recent article on high index glass accelerating mass adoption of augmented reality technology, and I'll put a link in the chat section so everybody can get a chance to connect to that. And while embracing open software and hardware platforms, LinkSpring develops, manufactures, distributes, and supports edge to enterprise solutions and IoT technology that creates smarter buildings, smart equipment, and smart applications. The company's technologies and solutions provide connectivity, control, integration, interoperability, data access management, analytics, you name it, both of today's sponsors do far more than I have time to mention here, but we are grateful for their contributions to our industry, to Realcom, and to educating our viewers like you. Once you hear the outstanding content in today's webinar, I'm sure you'll want to include these companies as part of your vendor evaluation process. And finally, our moderator is Mike Smith, president of Whitespace, with something like 100 years equivalent of technology experience. So welcome, Mike. <laughs> Hey, Chuck, how are you? I'm doing you well, it? thank you. All right, I'm going to get out of your way, and I'll join you back at the end. Thank you. Um, very excited for today's panel. Um, we're going to have some, a lot of interesting conversations, and I think you'll you'll find some new information that you may not be thinking about in your uh, commercial building. Um, today's today's session, as Chuck mentioned, is part of one uh, part one of a three series uh, discussion around uh, next gen smart building. And today we're going to talk about defining the smart buildings of tomorrow. Today we're going to talk about the, the analyzing design, development, and strategic management of the next generation high performance intelligent buildings. And what you're going to hear today is our panelists' perspective on planning and executing these smart building strategies that provide these future ready 
scalable approach for smart building projects uh, and their por and portfolios. Um, and I just want to reiterate to Chuck, you know, we do uh, we would like you to post questions or comments down in the chat section. We do look at those um, and we'll, we'll get to those towards the end when we do a QA. and a uh, So please post a question and tell us who it's for and, and we'll try to get to as many questions as possible. Uh, a little bit more about me. So um, my firm, Whitespace, we are uh, building technology advisors. We help owners, operators, architects uh, determine the correct technology to put into a buildings. We don't sell anything. We act as owners reps reach out to us, ask questions, more than happy to talk about building assessments and how we might be able to help you make your buildings go from smart to smarter. Um, our first speaker um, that we have today is Ujani Desgupta. Hello, Ujani, how are you? I am well, how are you doing, Mike? Good. Ujani is the uh, Smart Building Innovations Lead at Merrick. Um, Ujani is Merrick's uh, 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 smart Building Lead, where she leads a team of partners in um, global sites at Merrick, employees to solve problems at scale related to employee experiences and facility operations. Welcome. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Can you guys? Yep. Yeah, there you go. Well, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I'm very excited to talk to you guys today um, about some of the projects we are doing here at Merck and provide an end user perspective. So some of the topics I would like to cover today is um, talk about what our approach to digital has been. Uh, some of the projects that we are working on to transform the workspace and based on about three and a half years of work that we have done so far, what some of the key learnings have been. So first of all, uh, as uh, Mike mentioned, I uh, my name is Ujjaini Dasgupta. I've been with Merck about uh, three and a half years now, and I am part of the digital transformation team within real estate and facilities management. However, given the nature of the work that I do, uh, we uh, work every single day in very close partnership with Enterprise IT, um, and this is actually very, very critical to the success of these projects. Uh, IT must be um, very closely involved front and center with smart building projects in my experience. And as far as the projects itself are concerned, um, that there's been two areas of um, focus for us. Uh, one has been around enhancing the employee experience. Um, this has become even more important uh, with, with the pandemic. Uh, and then another one um, around facilities optimization. And these uh, projects are often interrelated, so it's not necessarily one or the other. And then ultimately, all of this is really about um, data-driven decision-making. So what we are ultimately trying to do is uh, be able to get uh, granular and reliable data so that critical business decisions can be taken based on that analytics. So when we first started this, or created this team, this team came together about three and a half years ago. Uh, one of the first things that we did is we sat down and created these governing principles. And some of these might seem very obvious, but uh, it was very important to us that we uh, write it out and make sure that we had had these um, so that we could refer back to them as and when needed. Uh, so first of all, um, focusing on projects, uh, focusing on uh, solving problems uh, that were the most meaningful to the organization. And even though this seems like very obvious, but sometimes when you have an immediate issue to be solved, but that may be very localized, um, it's very um, easy to lose sight of, of 
of this whole enterprise level approach quickly. Uh, it's also been very important to us to define the use cases really well. And even when the problem and the solution is very obvious, sometimes not having the use cases defined well uh, can really um, trip you up as you're doing the project. So it's important that that's done uh, well ahead of time. Uh, pursuing solutions that are proven and scalable. So even though a lot of these technologies are new, we are always making sure that we have a responsibility to make sure that there is some proof and there are there is some case studies um, behind um, the, the technologies that we do bring in. Um, the other one has been to, so it's not always necessarily about bringing in new solutions, but sometimes it's about really looking around to see if we could reimagine something that already exists, whether it's a process change, whether it's uh, expanding the capabilities of an existing organization, um, technology. And uh, lastly, taking an agile approach. Uh, this has proven to be very useful for us. Um, and we have found that taking an agile, having an agile mindset really helps us to understand very quickly whether um, a given solution is the right fit and uh, where to go as the next steps. So these are some of the uh, biggest projects that we've been tackling um, and um, one of them has been around developing a workplace app for our employees, especially important now that we are in a hybrid work environment. So whether you're at home or in, on site, having a mobile one-stop shop um, has been very critical. Another around space utilization, this is no, obviously nothing new, but um, the value of having space utilization data has been uh, very, very critical. And um, Unified user interface, so a single pane of glass or a building systems integration, there are a lot of uh, different terms used for this technology, but having that capability of one pane of glass to do command and control for the various um, uh, systems in your building, that's again another uh, big area of focus for us. Uh, for today's session, I just wanted to talk a little more in detail about the space utilization project that we have been working on. Um, this has uh, really a two-pronged value. So one is, of course, for our real estate and facilities management team, having this data to understand um, the utilization at a building, at a campus level, portfolio level, going down to even at a room level. And then from an employee standpoint, many of our sites are uh, either already completely unassigned or moving towards unassigned. So if you are going into a building and you no longer have you know, an assigned desk, having, um, having the ability to pull up on your mobile app or on a digital screen, uh, where can I find a desk? Where can I find a room? Uh, so that you know, I don't have to keep walking around um, and, and wasting my time trying to find space. And the point is that you know this data can be found from many different sources. So it's not just you know one size fit all. Uh, and all of this data is completely anonymous. So there's batch data, reservation data, sensor data, Wi-Fi, LAN, and all of these data sources have their pros and cons. But the point is that uh, it's not a one size fits all. And we have the ability to extract all of these data and really fit the solution to the needs of the site. And then finally, uh, some of our lessons learned. Uh, I already mentioned about the agile approach, and I and I stress on this because this has proven to be an immense value to us in how we project manage internally. Uh, again, you know, um, fail fast and uh, you know 
learn from it and move on to making improvements. Um, the second and the third point, they're kind of related. So Merck is a large organization. We have a global footprint, many, many millions of square footage. And so uh, when it comes to technology, standardization and scalability is key. Um, so our team does work at a global scale. So we're always thinking of what can be uh, rolled out at an enterprise level. So having uh, the uh, standardization and scalability in mind as we make our decisions um, is very important. Reimagining, again, like I mentioned, it's not always about bringing something new in. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, but it's important that we look around and see, can we solve this problem with what we already have? And if the answer is no, then of course we, we find a partner that can help us with something new. Um, and then the last two are again, you know, super critical. And I'll be honest, when we first started this, this was probably not on top of mind for us. But as we have matured and progressed, um, change management, this is people change management, and having a sustainment plan is critical. Uh, and change management starts from day one, not not when you are approaching the end of the project, um, because without a good change management plan, uh, no matter how uh, you know how wonderful your solution has been how seamless everything has been um you know the there is very uh, high likelihood that that the project may not um, sustain um, and having an ongoing plan to maintain all, all that hard work is also very critical because once the project's completed and the project team has moved on to something else there needs to be a process and people in place to keep that going so you can continue to prove value of the work um, and the resources spent. So that was all I had for today. Back to you, Mike. Thank you, Ujani. So I'm curious, why why did you decide to work on an app? And and, and, and was there a need or a request from the employees to, to kind of start in this direction? Yeah, so we actually started this work like four plus years ago, actually even before I joined Mark, um, and it wasn't, necessarily a need it's not like employees were coming to us and saying we need an app but we were thinking of it like how can we get ahead um so you know personal lives we all uh, are glued to our phones right you know we do so much on our mobile phones and the thought process that we had within Merck is like why should we not have that same experience um, when you come into the workplace um the other problem that we were trying to solve is that again being a big organization, there is you know, a lot going on always, and especially if you are a new employee coming in, or even if you're someone who's been with the company for a long time, it's always like, you know, if I need to um, print, what's the process? If I need to do an expense report, what's the process? If I need a shuttle schedule, what's the process? I'm going into a new site, where am I supposed to park? Um, I'm going into a new site, does this site have a cafeteria? Where do I go to find this information? Uh, so it just seemed like the obvious choice. It was the, you know, the obvious vehicle for um, us to uh, provide that uh, easy tool for our employees. So what? So what's next? What's on the horizon? What can you tell us about that you're working on uh, in the future? Yeah. So I mean, some of the work that we mentioned, it's still ongoing. You know, uh, the fun thing with technology is that it's never, um, you know, there is no hard start and stop, right? Because technology is always progressing. Uh, so the 
Our next steps, the, what, what I see is um, uh, really around predictive maintenance. So I think that's another very exciting area. And um, you know, with AI and uh, machine learning, I see that as our next step to really utilize this data for uh, predictive work. Very exciting. Well, thank you. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you um, at the Q&A session towards the end. Thank you. Thank you. Our, um, our, our next speaker, is uh, Farouk Aslam, who is the CEO and president of Sinclair Holdings. Hello, Farouk, how are you? I'm doing good, Mike, how are you? Good, uh, so Farouk is a commercial developer based in Fort Worth, focusing on hotels, office buildings, and upscale apartments. His diverse background includes telecom infrastructure from voice over IP to fiber to the home networks. Farouk, very excited to hear what you have to tell us, what you're, uh, what's going on in your, uh, with your buildings. So we decided back in 2016 that we will, um, instead of using off-the-shelf proprietary controls, uh, develop um, LED lighting powered by uh, power over Ethernet technology, which has been around for a long time. And um, this way, we can bring power and um, get data at the same time and control them. And I started remodeling an office building um, to vacate Sinclair office building at the time so I can get it ready for a hotel conversion. Uh, Sinclair is basically um, an autograph Marriott hotel, 17 stories, rooftop bar, a very upscale steakhouse. And it, the first project was the office building in 2016 to move a lot of tenants from Sinclair into the neighboring building. And I was able to convince Marriott that this is a better way to um, do lighting controls uh, as opposed to uh, traditional AC power and then low voltage cables to do controls. So that's when I started to uh, explore that there's a better way to use power. And by the time Sinclair was completed, we have over 750 motorized window shades and um, drapes that are all PoE powered. We have mini bar in every guest room, 164 of them that are also running on uh, power over ethernet technology. We have TVs in the bathroom, mirrors, all of them, every room that also runs on the same technology. And in the process, um, as Sinclair was originally designed as uh, all AC powered building, it got permitted and the plans were submitted to the city in early 2017 and got permitted as an all AC powered building. We were able to reverse it into um, low voltage DC. And interestingly, we pursued um, a very different approach as one would think, your listeners would think that we have a bunch of CAT5 cables from IDF closets on every floor connecting to over 8,000 light fixtures in Sinclair. That's not true. We only have one 18-2 cable, a speaker cable, 18-gauge cable going into each guest room and a single mode fiber because we have GPON system, you know. So basically, the, in a sense, it's really an intelligent use of power and intelligent use of controls. To us, that's the future of a smart building. How are you uh, distributing power in the building? Today, that design is kind of dumb. You know, the AC-powered building, You the code requires you to have outlets, plugs in every so many feet, all your lights. Then you have panels, breaker panels, and then a main switch gear. And there's no proper utilization of rationalization of this power. So using 
uh, intelligent uh, distribution of power using digital electricity and PoE power, we are able to really uh, pinpoint power where it's needed, you know. Um, we think of our um, business uh, building uh, similar to a Tesla model. How um, internal combustion engine cars now transform into an EV, commercial buildings are going through the similar transformation. Um, we feel the future building will be entirely DC powered, and most of it, 95% uh, of it, would be class two DC power. By the way, they ratified a new um, class four standard now. Um, we are <clears throat> big proponents of this um, packet energy transfer, or the brand name is Digital Electricity at Sinclair, and we have since deployed that in a couple of other projects. <clears throat> this slide basically sums up what all today is powered using DC power and how we are uh, able to do it. So at Sinclair, our main TV and air conditioning in the room is still runs on AC power. But we are now working with LG to make both of those things also work with a power over Ethernet technology. So can you imagine the next hotel we build, which will be hopefully starting in the next 90 days? we will start designing it where the entire air conditioning inside the building runs on uh, power over ethernet technology. So it's plug and play in the field. No, no longer an electrical contractor is needed to wire all your air conditioning, even all your outlets. Outlets would be, while it's AC power to the guest, but behind the wall, it's an inverted uh, DC into AC and that DC would be class two DC power. So what's how what what is our vision? Uh, I will concur with Ojani how she uh, did at Merck. We basically will be bringing uh, sensors which we already deploy today um, into different spaces and monitor uh, occupancy. And then really there there's so much data being generated from our spaces that we create this logic. Um, you know you can call it an AI. And all artificial intelligence is having a bunch of data and using an algorithm to process that, you know. So we can really start to uh, rationalize power uh, use in empty spaces. For example, uh, since I'm big into hotels, a um, lot of about 30% of hotel space is unoccupied. Most of this is meeting rooms and unoccupied guest rooms. Today, the air conditioning is running 24 seven in these spaces. Um, we are bringing intelligent sensors to detect human occupancy. The traditional PIRs are not very accurate. Um, using some Bluetooth sensors is just a lot more accurate for that. And then we can really decide to um, optimize uh, the temperature in those empty spaces, you know. Uh, let me go to the next slide. What's also driving a lot of this a development that we are doing is the new standards. The low voltage DC technology is in our lives every day, from our phone chargers, laptop chargers. I mean, guess where they started? I mean, the USB Type A, 2.5 watt, back in 2000. Then we had the Type um, USB, you know, which uh, again the power budget was increased in 2003. The PoE started at 15 watts back in 2003. Then it went to 30 watts in 2009 and was called PoE plus. In 2011 and 12, that became UPoE at 60 watts. And today, 
actually when we were working on Sinclair at the tail end of our finishing, our final switch that came in was 90 watt on each port, um, a 48 port switch from Cisco. So we have one 90 watt switch. Since then, our new projects have all 90 watt ports and that's really driving the growth. Then recently, USB Type-C has now come up with the 240 watt standard. We think that'll be a game changer. You can power some appliances with that much power. Um, a typical LED TV is under 100 watts. A one and a half ton VRF air conditioning unit is about 80 watts. So kind of tells you that 90 watt PoE gives me a lot of um, uh, appliances I can I can use that power to control and power an air conditioning system, typically in a hotel guest room. Uh, 18,000 BTUs, a very generous amount of cooling or heating system, you know, um, in a hotel guest room. So that is also bringing intelligent power so we can also control. Um, today, the way a typical VRF air conditioning unit works is an electrician comes and wires a 208 volt AC uh, whip or power cord or MC cable. Um, and then a low voltage contractor comes and daisy chains uh, a low voltage cable for controls. And then another cable, low voltage cable connects to your thermostat. Uh, in our future model, it'll be a simple RJ45 uh, plug and play ethernet connection into an AC unit and it comes on your network. And your thermostat will just also be connected to the networks. It makes the install much simpler and be able to control this unit much easier. Other advantages are in hotel maintenance. Um, most, most of the time, your maintenance guys slacks on changing filters on time. With intelligent power and data, the moment the filter gets dirty, it starts to push a little harder. The fan is working a little harder. The power curve goes up. If I'm monitoring that power utilization, I can start to um, send a text message to the maintenance. Hey, you need to go check your AC filter. That's where the intelligent use of power comes in, you know. Um, sure, I'll flip to the next slide. I'm sorry. So this is a good slide to show you on the upper um, part of this picture, this slide what the traditional AC power infrastructure looks like. You know, we all have seen conduits, hard metal conduits, um, wire nuts, you know, and uh, outlets, or these boxes that you've been. In our in Sinclair project, what you have in the bottom row there is um, racks and uh, Cat5 cable, and in the field, uh, pre-terminated cable that's brought in and it's plug and play in the field, you know. Uh, we are now designing harnesses where each room can be a harness you custom make. And in the field, it just becomes very easy to snap it in place with all your light fixtures, you know. <clears throat> Here's a picture what where we're going with this thing. The first picture at Sinclair is where we were able to replace a 350 kilowatt diesel generator with a lithium ion battery system. This is an actual picture of installation at Sinclair Hotel. Since then, we completed a project in New Haven, which is um, uh, the first net zero hotel in North America. Um, and um, it has a one megawatt hour of energy storage. 
actually two 500 kWh storage in two different floors of the building. The middle is a, typical, a picture of a typical uh, VRF air conditioning fan coil. That is the unit which comes in 30 different styles. Um, that will be a PoE powered fan coil in our upcoming projects. And on the last, on the right-hand side, uh, we are working with a vendor out of Germany to bring, make our building elevators 50% more energy efficient by harvesting the braking. When the elevators move and you break them, we harvest that braking energy and charge ultra capacitors and immediately put that power back into the uh, elevator, basically. I'm mindful of the time here. Um, I'm, I'm going to pause here and let the um, audience uh, read this little press release that was done in uh, June, uh, June 14th, while I was, I think, in Orlando. Uh, this is a project we did in New Haven, which is a net zero building, has solar panels you see on the rooftop in the parking area and battery system. And there was a, power, a grid outage in the city. And this, um, we have 150 guests in the dining area. The lights did not even flicker. So I'll pause for a second while everybody reads this. You know. So this is where the future is, where your buildings have stored energy. They generate you know, um, their own renewable energy using solar or their other forms also, and then uh, you are not relying on the grid all the time, you know. So lastly, um, that's what I had to share with the audience. Farouk, thank you. I, um, I, I have a lot of questions, which we'll probably save towards the end um, in the larger Q&A. But, you know, as someone, as a consultant who's worked on about nine uh, POE lighting buildings, lighting full buildings, I'm fascinated by the technology, and, it, and you've just taken it to the next level. But I want to ask you a question because I love your response to this um, as we talked before is if this is so great and it's so resilient and, and you talk about cost is not that much if planning is done properly, why isn't everyone else doing this? Why, why, are, why are we so behind in doing this? So, you know, uh, I say commercial uh, developers are really behind in catching up with technology. That's a factual statement. All around us on a daily basis, there's so much improvement from our cell phones to our, any communication equipment we use to our cars going to EVs. While if you look at a typical commercial building, the color of your electrical panel may be from light gray to dark gray or light blue. But really, if you look at, I, I'm fond of historic buildings. When I look at buildings from 1930s and 40s, honestly, just the style of breakers have changed, but in principle, it's the same AC power delivered and the same way it's distributed in the building. There hasn't been any innovation, you know. And in the meantime, your um, end, end points, like your LED lighting, which is a big change. Do you know that 95% of all lights installed in North America are non-LED lights still? There's so much work to do in catching up with that. So LED lights are inherently DC powered, low voltage DC powered devices. I think, uh, most developers are resistant to change. And I normally say it's a Tesla story. I normally ask people, hey, do you drive a Tesla? And the answer nine out of 10 times is no. And I said, why not? Is it not a good car? Is it not a good technology? And people just go blank. 
the fact is 86% of Tesla owners will buy another Tesla, the highest among any car ownership. And Tesla, the reason I'm using the brand name, I really refer, Tesla here refers to EV, electric vehicle. And of course, they're the leaders and they become the brand name. So the same thing is going on in commercial buildings. We are where Tesla was in 2012. We want our, our neighbor or our best friend to do it, buy it first and tell us what is his experience. But um, factually in New York City alone, over 5 million square feet of tenant space is going through this POE transformation. About 2 million is already complete and handed over and people have moved in. I personally visited Cisco's new offices in one Penn Plaza, 60,000 feet office space, all on POE power lighting. And that's become a show place for other prospective customers to look at it. That's just one example, New York City, 5 million square feet of office space. And remember, it doesn't have to be an entire building. You can bring it in phases. So if you're a 50-story building and you have a TI required in five floors, you can start in those five floors. And as more floors are going through TI, tenant improvement, then convert them into POE lighting. We are currently working with City of Fort Worth, relocating their city hall into a high-rise building. And they own the building, but they still have tenants in many floors. So we are working with them to change the floors that they will be occupying with POE lighting. And as more as their tenants move out and they remodel those floors, they will be also converted to POE lighting. No, it's exciting. And, and again, we'll, we'll continue our conversation at the Q&A, but thank you, Farouk, for your time. Um, before we uh, get to our, our next panelist, uh, we have a quick video. So our, our next panelist is John Doolin of Corning. John, are you with us? I'm here. Good, good afternoon. Uh, John is the uh, VP Marketing Development with, at, uh, uh, with Corning Optical Communications focused on commercial real estate, healthcare, and multifamily markets. Welcome, John. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate the introduction and good afternoon, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon. It's so great to be here. Um, I just believe in, you know, I know all these panelists, um, we are all on a mission together to move buildings from smart to smarter. So um, what I want to talk about, and you'll hear some similar themes in my presentation that you just heard from Farouk, by the way. Um, I always like to start with this TIA drawing because just two years ago, this drawing had about half of the amount of uh, devices on it and it just in the just in the last couple years we have seen such an explosion of end devices and new applications going into business uh, buildings all types of buildings lots of it has to do with health and safety of uh, residents of tenants also the experience of people in their work environment and their living environment and their playing environment all driving lots of devices at the end. 
So why do we, and why do we have, we continue, much like what Farouk just said, to do things like we've always done. Traditionally, we get all these devices on the right. They are single use cabled devices. They could be cabled with category cable, could be fiber, could be coax, but each of these devices and endpoints tend to have their own network. We've been doing this, this approach, this architecture, the layer one, by the way, is what I'm speaking to. Uh, we've been doing it this way for decades. And what happens when you do it, and with all these new devices being put into buildings, you end up with a scenario where we thought we had cable trays big enough to fit all these edge devices, to have all these things connected. And we're ending up with buildings that have cable trays that are really quite large, completely full, because they're single purpose networks running to edge devices that have quadrupled in quantity from smart lighting, sensors, cameras, cellular systems, public safety systems, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And that's what is really challenging our customers. So they have come to Corning to really answer this fundamental question. How can we, after all these years of doing it the same way, start thinking about a network differently? And what we've been working in this, we're seeing a, a really big change in, in just in the last couple of years where people are moving from a traditional fiber network in the, in the backbone to a fiber deep. And what we mean by fiber deep is a fiber with a composite cable and composite is fiber optic strands of glass with copper wires that provide powering to the edge. The fiber, of course, is for the unlimited bandwidth, and we're seeing that network move all the way to the edge where all these devices are now needing to be high-speed broadband as well as being powered remotely. This is a live picture of a, a building that we did with one of our large clients. When they started the construction of this building, it's an office building, by the way, um, in the middle of the construction, they decided to rethink how they were going to do their layer one cabling because they had to be ready for 5G. By the time they got to sitting with us and we worked together on a, a fiber deep design, they had already put in all the cable uh, racking and cable trays. And this picture is the fiber backbone and fiber to the edge that is taking care of 600 end devices in this particular building. There is so much capacity in a very fiber is a very small cable, but big, small in diameter, big in, in bandwidth. Uh, also, we provide, as I mentioned earlier, the powering that goes out to all these edge devices. So we're seeing a, a fundamental change on in the very beginning, thinking about all the applications, all the end devices, what needs to be connected, how, and, it's, and what needs to be powered, and how do you do a design that takes care of all those items in your and those devices in your in your building? And 
so Farouk's talking about the change of POE and Corning has always been a company that made fiber optics and we make wireless uh, and building wireless systems that need to be fed by fiber. And we realized, well, shoot, we're putting all the smart devices at the end, they need power. So why don't we make a cable that provides fiber and the copper wires to provide bandwidth and power, as I mentioned earlier. We have a whole, you know, and I can tell the audience based on our ability to keep up with demand on this new cable, I can tell you it is happening very quickly. We've seen a huge transformation in how buildings are designed. And uh, really thrilled about that because we're future-proofing buildings and they're 5G ready and um, really pleased at uh, how our customers are finally embracing these new changes. We have plenty of use cases to share. More than willing to uh, share those with you. If anybody wants to get um, come back to me, I will certainly talk about all the cool designs we've done and all the OPEX, CAPEX savings and how pleased our clients are. So that's that's all I've got. Back to you, Mike. Thank you, John. So just, just to kind of add a little more context to what you just mentioned, you know, you mentioned the cost savings, um, ROI to buildings. Can you talk at a very high level? I know it's hard not having a building to actually go into, but is there a percentage of savings that you see deploying this type of uh, fiber-based infrastructure as opposed to the traditional? Yeah, I, I, there's a there's a whole list of things you got to take into consideration when you to answer that question. Um, some is just pure cost savings. A lot of it's giving space back because in this way of doing it, you free up a lot of square footage, so you, you get leasable and rentable space coming back. Um, fewer cable runs, less labor to pull, multiple single-purpose um, networks saves a lot of money on the cabling side. Uh, optical fiber is uh, actually rel very inexpensive relative to what you get from it. Um, so you get some savings right off the bat on the CapEx. So there's two things. Up front, we have seen significant savings. And, you know, without going into a, it all depends on the type of building and how many end devices. But we are seeing savings as you compare to traditional up front. And then over the course of its life, the total return, lots of savings on OPEX as well. So short answer is it's a very uh, financially sound approach. Okay. Um, you know, as, as people talk about this future ready cabling uh, infrastructure, um, and I know, I think you mentioned even it, it, this is easily done and, and retrofits as, as well as new constructions, but um, uh, what should be the plan? What should, what should an owner be thinking about to execute this type of strategy uh, going forward in one of their buildings? Well, that's a, that's a really great question because um, we look at it like this. Um, if you think of fiber as a 12-lane highway in each direction versus a one-lane, if you think like that, because there's really virtually unlimited bandwidth in that, the challenge is what do you want to hang off the infrastructure? Of course, and then there's layer two and layer three above, but our belief is if you put a fiber infrastructure with a 
a lot, a lot of strands of glass going out and you think about, okay, here's a list of all the things I need to connect with bandwidth and with power. And instead of doing it individually, you know, all your back of house stuff, tends to, as an example, tends to be individual thought process, get the right people in the room and just make a list of everything you're, you think you need today, you know you need, and what potentially is coming in the future as an example, 5G, planning for that. And that's really just the cable, the fiber optics that you need to be future ready. And it's just holistic look at all the things you need inside of any type of building. Right. Thank you for that. And I uh, look forward to continuing our conversation at the end of the, uh, the panel discussion. Uh, before you, our Mike. next panelist, uh, we have a video. LinkSpring's Edge to Enterprise for Enterprise and Multi-Sites is a turnkey smart building solution that connects, accesses, and translates operational and facility data from devices and equipment into actionable information. Information that can save energy, increase efficiency, and reduce operating costs while maintaining a higher level of comfort for occupants. The Edge to Enterprise solution consists of hardware and software combined with engineering, deployment, and professional services. It's everything you need to deploy and experience the value of a smart facility enterprise, including connectivity, integration, interoperability, automation, command and control, data access and normalization, analytics, and cloud services. Looks like the video got cut a little short. Um, I'd like to bring back uh, Mark, Mark Pitak, uh, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at LinkSpring. Hello, Mark. Good. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, hi, Mike. <laughs> Appreciate it. Hope everybody's doing well. So today, uh, we've heard it mentioned twice uh, on our webinar so far about the movement from smart buildings to smarter buildings. And I'm going to address some things that um, I believe are lending to this movement from smart to smarter. So first, I'm going to go ahead and share with you um, nine key components that um, I believe are part of this movement. So they are real-time building and facility management, convergence of our traditional operational technology side of the house with the new workplace side, interoperability, continuous commissioning, the OT architecture, smart data, ESG, cybersecurity, and uh, smart building outcomes. Now, in looking at um, a smarter building, smarter building, smart buildings, as we know, are not new. We've been delivering smart buildings, at least the vision of a smart building since the early 1980s. However, today, smart buildings are at an inflection point that's being driven by several things, including connectivity, data, the edge or edge computing, cloud, what I alluded to earlier, the convergence of OT and the workplace, cybersecurity, and ESG. As for the next generation uh, of our smart buildings, we're, we're now here. I believe we're already moving 
from the traditional smart building to the smarter building. So what is a smarter building? And again, everybody's gonna have their own definitions and so forth, but I've tried to keep this as simple as possible. So smarter buildings recognize people and stakeholders and are driven by outcomes beyond the implementation of solutions. So it's taking into account the different people, whether you're on the operational side, tenant, occupant, so forth and so on. It includes identified KPIs and based on these KPIs with expected outcomes and driven by the business side, not just the technology side today. So additionally, what does a smarter building consist of? What makes up a smarter building? Again, it's not just about installing technology and operating and advancements. It's really looking at that the systems within the building and the technology behind them is helping you achieve a means to an outcome. These outcomes are delivering solutions that are really owner operator specific. In other words, every owner, every operator, every building has unique requirements. And so a smarter building is addressing those unique requirements uh, versus just uh, delivering uh, pat typical ones such as energy savings. Again, not to say that they're not part of it, but it's owner-occupied situation specific. And it's results driven that is achieving specific business, financial, uh, and marketability outcomes. So let's kind of dive into this, these nine components. So the first one is all about real-time building and facility management. We know today that there are fewer employees coming back to our offices. We already know that. And to prove that point, roughly the latest statistics tell us that's roughly 20 to 25% of the companies based in the US are back in the office only three days or more a week. That's it. And I don't believe we will return to a completely um, occupied office environment uh, for the uh, for the for the near time future. And so it's important that we run our buildings. A smarter building will run itself based on the number of employees at any given day at any given time. The next component, as, and I alluded to this earlier, is the convergence of the traditional operational side of the house with the workplace side. Uh, traditionally, they have always been in separate domains. But again, a smarter building is bringing these together just like we've done with the convergence of OT and IT. Traditional operating environment now connects the physical workplace with the operational side. And Yujani uh, gave a good example in her uh, app with people coming in, calling it up on the phone, 
getting their play, um, finding their office space, so forth and so on. And again, this is uh, part of making this smarter building. Next one is interoperability. And when it comes to making buildings smarter, effective interoperability between the building systems is critical to maximizing its performance, reducing the cost, that's what we all want to do, and achieving the most important thing today, the health and safety and comfort levels that is expected in our buildings. So what is interoperability? To keep it simple, it's the ability for the different systems, the devices, the equipment, the sensors, and the applications, no matter the manufacturer, to connect, communicate, translate, and exchange data across these different boundaries and to the different stakeholders that uh, need to know the information. Next one is continuous commissioning. Is for the most part, um, the continuous commissioning process is again, bringing in the building systems and the equipment function, making sure they're validated, they're confirmed, they're running at optimal levels. I think we all can attest that once we commission a building, the day it starts, the next day it's out of commissioning. So part of this continuous commissioning process is to help ensure cost efficiency, prolonging the equipment system life cycle, lifespan, uh, making sure we're not overlooking maintenance uh, issues that uh, are important to making a smarter building, and um, the ever-changing needs of the occupants. We know that uh, that changes you know, fairly regularly, so continuous commissioning does help to do that. So also, the next point is the building operating architecture. With the technology advancements to IP, to IP-centric and more distributed architectures, our architecture is flattening. It's gone from a vertical type to more one that is horizontal. Uh, again, because of the power of the devices today and the movement of IP. Next is smart data. I think we can we all agree that data is uh, the most one of the most important parts of uh, of a smarter building today, and we cannot operate a building a smarter building without data. It's got to be the right data though. It's got to be organized. It's got to be tagged. It's got to be modeled, and it has to be able to be universally utilized. And also one of the newer areas for the smarter building movement is being able to ensure data governance. And I think that's a key part as we rely more and more on smart data. Next is ESG. ESG, the adoption and the investment by uh, owners and occupiers today is increasing and is becoming priority. Uh, it's in the C-suite. It's a heightened attention within there. Uh, corporate ESG ratings are synonymous with reduced higher risk and returns. Sustainability, sustainability buildings represent right now just about one to two percent 
of the current building stock in North America. And however, um, uh, there's, we're seeing more and more of this. And part of the, the drive here is while we may have talked about parts of ESG in previous lives of a smart building, the fact that it is public relations driven today. We cannot have conversations about our buildings without it becoming part of a public relations effort, uh, I think is, is helping to drive the ESG movement. I'd be remorse if I did not bring up cybersecurity. I think we've all talked about that and, um, and we all know the importance of adopting good cyber um, initiatives and to ensure the posture and so forth and so on. And the next is the smarter building outcomes. And I place these into four key areas. So look at it as the business side, which is all about OPEX, CAPEX, increasing the asset value of a property, the marketability of the property, optimizing your TCO, and adhering to compliances. If there are any com uh, compliance issues that, you're, uh, that you need to uh, maintain and adhere to. Next is financial. And this is all about the cost, the profitability, your return on investment. Next is the operational side, which is how the systems, how the equipment is performing, energy management, equipment lifespan, and so forth and so on. And finally, workplace, which is all about the utilization of the space, reducing risk, especially from a health and safety perspective, the, the new certification, whether it be towards ESG, uh, wellness, and so forth and so on. And finally, you know, the quest for smarter buildings continues, and, and we, we, we as an industry are in the most transformative and compelling period we've been in in the last 25 years. It's more than just the products and the technology. It's really about the understanding of delivering outcomes that will make, that are and will make our building smarter. With that, Mike, I'm gonna turn that back to you. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. You know, I was, I was excited to hear you talk about the, the concept of continuous commissioning because I feel like so many people think, hey, smart, a smart building's like a crockpot, right? You kind of set and forget it and you walk away. And, and it's not that case. It's not that. We always have to verify and, um, and, and make sure we're still reporting properly. Uh, along those lines, you know, we, we talked about, we, we've gone from smart, we're trying to go smarter. So smart buildings have been around for a long time um, and, and we're trying to get smarter. Is there a lifespan that owners should think through, like, hey, we did this 10 years ago, like, are we completely out of date? And should we start to look into to upgrade? Um, is there a lifespan um, in your mind on, on these you know, smart buildings as we look to go smarter? I think there is. And, and as the need and requirements continually change, we have to change with that. And I'm not saying stuff has to be ripped out and replaced. I'm saying today we can use the technology and enhance what we have there. So whoever would have thought that we have been talking about 
um, indoor air quality, workplace health and all that. We started talking about that five, six, seven years ago, but obviously there was a big motivator that made us all stop, change and say, we got to do something differently. So yes, but once you have that foundation, I think you can continually expand and enhance that lifetime value, that life cycle, as you mentioned. Yeah, and I think too, as, as new technology comes on board, the costs come down, maybe you couldn't do it before, you're gonna start seeing the evolution of people taking, uh, trying to get more data out of these buildings. So very exciting time in our space. Thank Absolutely. you, Mark. Thanks. So I'm gonna request that everyone come back on camera. Um, we're gonna kind of do a, a general Q&A. Um, just while they're all coming back on, I do wanna remind you that uh, you can post your mm -hmm. questions um, whether it's just a general question or a specific panelist in the chat, and uh, we will try to get to it. So the first question, um, uh, Eugenie, um, kind of came back to you with your presentation, um, and it says, I'm curious how you measure utilization, and is it through the phone location? Can you kind of talk through that? Yeah, so we um, actually use um, many different uh, sources of data. Um, so for Wi-Fi, uh, what we're really looking at is corporate devices like laptops and tablets. It's completely anonymized, so it doesn't know that it's Mike Smith sitting here. It just knows there is a Merck device here. Um, and then the same with LAN. So if you're uh, wire, you know, plugging into the Ethernet cable, that's another data source. Um, so Wi-Fi and LAN, um, the advantage is that that's uh, data that's already available because you know IT is using that for uh, monitoring the network. Uh, the downside being that it is not as accurate as a sensor is. So it it just you know may be able to tell you in the six desk cluster there is about you know three people here roughly, um, but it 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 will not be able to say um, the the precision is not as accurate as a as a people counting sensor perhaps, but. At the end of the day, it's really about the use case. You don't always, if not every use case requires, in this case, a 99.9% .9 accuracy, uh, maybe a 70, 80% accuracy is good enough. Are you, um, I know you're not tracking like that it's me, Mike Smith's phone, but you, do you know that that same phone keeps coming back into the same area? So maybe it's, hey, Mike's hogging the, or whoever's on that phone is hogging the same room every day. Um, are you, can you get to that kind of detail? Yeah, so you you can tell that it's it's uh, this specific device. It's here now. It's there. Um, but again, we're very very careful with our privacy assessments. Uh, we definitely do not uh, want we want to make sure that there is no uh, privacy issues being violated. So we go through very careful privacy assessments that are internal processes that are set up. Um, but we do know that this is the same device that was in this room and then it went to that room and so on. Very cool. Um, our next question, and John, I'm going to throw this to you, but I have a feeling a few people might answer this. Uh, it's regarding uh, regarding the um, uh, fiber. Um, are there more ideal or less ideal building types for these full fiber infrastructure? Commercial seems to be like a no-brainer, but residential uh, multi-unit high-rise seems a little less ideal um, outside of the ISP, the internet service providers own fiber. John, I'll start with you, and then. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take everybody on a journey. Uh, Two billion kilometers ago, 
when Corning in, uh, invented our single mode fiber um, 50 years ago already, gosh. Um, took us about 45 years to get to a billion and a half kilometers of optical fiber deployed. In the last year, we've deployed a half a billion. You know why? Because we connected continents first, and then we connected countries. Then we started connecting cities. And then we went to fiber to the home. And the last mile is going inside of all types of buildings. All sectors have this, I, this need for fiber to the very edge, mainly because it's being driven by all this technology that's going into buildings. Specifically to the multifamily segment, it is a, Two things have happened, um, and I think the biggest thing that's happened in February of this year, the FCC ruled and made some, you know, basically gave the residents of apartment buildings some choice, and they ruled making it uh, no longer legal to enforce or have graduated revenue share models between the ISPs, the carriers, and the building owner. Exclusive marketing rights got thrown out, and it's kind of thrown the whole the whole network inside of a building multifamily. Um, consequently, many of the multifamily developers we work with are are looking at both their back of house networks, which are moving to fiber, but now they're looking at well, we're gonna there could be a revenue model, um, a revenue opportunity for us by running a fiber to the room, just like in hotels. Hotels are moving to fiber to the room, just like Farouk's hotel. Same thing is happening in multifamily. So I I would say that, the, again, my, my line, I like to talk. My short answer is there's not a building type that we have seen that is uh, not, out of, not out of scope for a fiber deep infrastructure. Yeah, and, and and we see it as well between garden style apartments to high rises to you know uh, malls and things like that. So so I don't think there's any less ideal. I think it just depends on whether it's a retrofit or new construction, right? So whether you have the ability to design, whether you have space to get from point A to point B, uh, and things like that. Um, Mark, I didn't know if you had anything that were you about to say something. Okay. Um, so Farouk. Um, I want to I want to jump back to to your project because I we kind of I feel like we kind of had to cut your uh, your presentation a little short. Um, you know we talked about all the things in the future of what uh, or what what you've accomplished so far with this uh, you know DC power solution. Um, there's one thing that's always been in everyone's mind and through owners that I talk to about this and the one system that's going to be hard to change is the fire life safety system and. I want to ask you about that. What is your concern there, and how do you see that market shifting to allow it to participate in a in a building like yours? So, two things in a fire life safety system. First of all, keep in mind I'm a hotel developer and I own office buildings. So when you work with a company like Marriott, their fire life safety standards are above and beyond what your local AHJ may be, because as a big corporation, sleeping you know, millions of people in their hotels, they're very concerned. Um, we are able to work with UL because UL 924 um, certification is the guidelines for what goes into um, uh, areas where you have 
uh, fire life safety equipment from exit signs to stairway lights to emergency backup power. On top of that, um, the fire alarm system, right? The intelligent fire alarm system. We are also, we were approached, uh, we were approached by NFP, uh, NFPA, um, this is like three years ago when I was almost finishing Sinclair, to exhibit our technology at their annual conference in San Antonio that year. And they gave me a target to come to the following year's conference in Orlando and be able to demonstrate working um, smoke alarms, pull stations, other devices um, that are PoE powered. And they wanted to pair me up with a couple of their uh, fire alarm panel manufacturers, national. But I was too busy with Sinclair and then the COVID happened. Um, I know for every industry, but in particular for what I was working on, COVID was not helpful. I mean, for two years, nobody was traveling and we were not traveling, we, we, we were not getting visitors. So I feel like I've lost two and a half years of my life somewhere in this cycle. I would have been a lot farther ahead with what we do had I not been a victim of this um, shutdown, like a blanket shutdown. Now I'm all motivated. I am um, going to revive this. Uh, we have a strong relationship with UL. Without them, we cannot get into uh, many buildings or many cities and even in, with Marriott. So they have, they have been very helpful in holding our hands and guiding us, you know. Um, my biggest accomplishment in Sinclair is not POE lighting, but it's really bringing an ESS, energy storage system. And anybody listening from Texas, we've had some serious outages uh, starting last year in winter, where half the state shut down. And we were very close to being entire state shut down. And in the last three days, there have been two emails from our utility companies warning us about blackouts. So I am anxious to do my next projects with 100% battery backup and do anywhere from 12 hours to 24 hours of battery backup, uh, full air conditioning, lighting load, everything, and then have some kind of, if uh, site permits, have renewable energy available on the site. We did that in our New Haven project and the results are tremendous. We're getting a lot of press on that. And the owner who is an architect, a Yale graduate, is very happy that he has done that thing. You know. So the, so the renewables charge the batteries kind of like, so, so solar panels as an example would charge throughout the day so that if something gets knocked off, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's charging the energy storage, is that correct? Correct, so it's the solar capacity is more than what can charge the batteries. So daytime, it runs as much of the hotel and the surplus goes into batteries. And then those batteries are available at, after sundown, you know. So the idea is you have, we met with the developer for a massive um, resort in Utah in the desert. And they are really, really keen, keenly looking at this, you know, where they can generate. A lot of developers have to spend a lot of money to bring utility the final mile. Sometimes on a greenfield site or even in downtown environments, you don't have enough power to what you want to do, especially I do conversions from office buildings into luxury hotels, you end up having to add power and that is very expensive in a deregulated environment. Either you have to build a new transformer vault, pay for new transformers, and even sometimes they have to bring it in from almost half a mile away. And that can be in millions of dollars. And the solution is put energy storage system on site, charge your batteries because your power consumption is, uh, it's not even, right? You have peak loads and you have off peak loads. In hot summer days or cold winters, your daytime afternoons will be your peak loads. 
if you can do peak load shaving, for example, many markets, there's a three time higher peak rate of power than off peak rate. So these batteries can pay for themselves within three to five years by doing peak load shaving. So you can just in a very stable power grid environment, you can have these batteries charge at night during the day, shave off your 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 power curve, you know. So that will save you a lot of money. So you're buying power at off peak rate and using your stored energy during peak rates and then charging them again at off peak rate, you know. And they're very compact. A standard 19 inch rack, like a data center rack, today has 250 kWh, two and a half times largest Tesla battery in a car, largest Tesla Model 100S battery. That's a lot of power, a lot of stored energy. Four of these racks will be one megawatt hour of energy. And a typical 150 room hotel will need that for a 24 hour cycle. So, so just to reference point, how big is that power installation? It can fit in a small room, you know. Okay. But you're still running AC power to the building as kind of a backup. I mean. So, so we are net zero. We're not off grid. But I would love to experiment an off grid. Because you know, with the, the new technology, a lot of your new EVs, for example, the Ford Lightning 150, and they advertise, you can plug in an AC cord and plug it into your home, and that can be supplemental power for your house, right? So these are your uh, V2G, vehicle to grid. Um, you know, So they're making chargers now, while you plug in your car to an EV charger, in the event of an outage, the car can give charge back to the charger and into the building. So a future office building could be off-grid. When your employees come in with their EVs, they can plug into the building and give charge back to the office building, and vice versa. You have solar panels, and they can charge the building and charge your cars also. You know, So we are working on some interesting projects with our local government here, uh, where they're considering um, either electric school buses or electric public transport. But they're, um, wherever they'll park these buses will have an, a solar shade and harvesting the solar energy into batteries and then charging these vehicles. And there's some government incentives, by the way. A lot of your listeners should know there's a 26% federal tax credits on the entire solar batteries design installation, the whole nine yards. There's a 26%. And on top of that, several local utilities have big incentive programs. There's one in California called SGIP. Um, uh, PG&E has a huge incentive program these days it's for your self-generation. If you're generating renewable energy on top of the 26% federal tax credits, they will give you some cash incentives for that. So uh, so if we have a bunch of electric cars out front, you're going to suck the power out. So when I get in the car to go home, I won't have power to get home. But I'll give you money for that. <laughs> um, all right. So we have another question, which um, I, th I think is would be between Farouk and John around uh, competing technologies, which I think is really interesting. It says, do POE, Power Over Ethernet Solutions, and fiber infrastructure present conflicting advancements like Blu-ray and HD? POE appears to require copper to the edge, whereas fiber is looking to remove copper. John, I'm gonna start with you. Um, okay, it, it's, a great, it's a great question. Um, so think of the fiber, infrastructure is delivering the bits and bytes the data okay it is it's delivering 
broadband data to edge devices. Um, we believe, uh, and it's run in a LAN type um, architecture. What we're talking about when it comes to power, power is run over copper wire, full stop. Our scientists haven't figured out, nor will they figure out how to put power over glass, but um, if they do, that's a game changer, but I don't think that's possible. Anyway, um, there'll always be copper wire to power edge devices. Farouk, would you agree? Yes, so I, uh, if I may add, uh, they're not competing technologies. They complement each other. So power over ethernet is doing power and data over a same cable. And mm -hmm. fiber is all data, high-speed data. At Sinclair, we use distributed architecture. I do not have, when you think of Sinclair 17-story building, and John came over a few weeks ago after, I think, the conference in Orlando. And um, we do not have IDF closets. We do not have bundles of cables leaving a room and distributing out throughout the floor. Forget about the building. We actually bring an eight-port switch into every guest room. And that eight-port switch, I have four vendors now, and it's gone to 90 watts per port, and it fits on the palm of my hand, and it weighs a third of a pound. One-third of a pound. It has a fiber uplink and downlink. That switch needs, um, let's say, 800 watts of power, 720 watts to be exact. I can bring that power, a class two power, into the switch using an 18-2, a low voltage cable. And now I'm making a hybrid cable, which has a fiber and copper on a single cable. So to me, fiber complements my technology. The POE has a limitation. It has a 100 meter limitation. That's why in large floors or a campus environment like Ojani is working in Merck, you cannot have uh, ethernet cables go far farther than 100 meters because then you have a voltage drop. So with distributed switches, I can cover a campus. I can cover 10 buildings spread over two acres because my copper will carry power, the digital electricity up to two kilometers, 6,500 feet distance. That's a lot of distance. I can be in the basement and hit the 120th floor of a building with a single pair 18 cable to take a thousand watt up to the top floor. And that is where Primarily, DE was used to power DAS systems, um, cell phone antennas on the rooftops of high-rise buildings. New York City is a classic example. AT&T and Verizon are their largest customers for this technology because the cost to deploy that is much cheaper. It does not need to be in conduits, and it can be deployed by uh, a low-voltage contractor. You don't have to be a licensed electrician to deploy that technology. Those are the big advantages, and in our case, we are not required to have electrical inspections. It saves so much time in the field that I have deployed the entire Sinclair infrastructure for lighting, mini bars, power shades, and I've eliminated electrical panels and alternating floors. My goal is eventually to have no electrical panels, traditional electrical panel circuit breakers in the entire building, except for my main switch gear, my main incoming utility switch gear, and that's it. The rest is all intelligent power distribution, basically a power on demand model, not power available all the time. So if you're not plugged into an outlet, there's no power in that outlet. Only when you plug in, it negotiates and instantly brings power there. Very cool. John, did you have anything to add to that? 
Uh, you know, corning is, uh, we're always innovating. You know, we started making composite cable, which is fiber for your data, copper wires for your power. Um, and our first ones out of the factory were like two fiber, two copper. And this is going, it has gotten so, it saves so much money in installation, all the things Farouk just discussed. We're making, for larger venues, we're doing a lot of 24, 24, 24 fibers, 24 coppers. 12, 12 is a very common number, 12 fibers, 12 coppers. It used to be, again, two, two. Point is, so many edge devices are getting deployed. You need data. We got 20 kilometers of distance on the fiber with technology, digital electricity. We, Corning, have also have intelligent powering solutions that have aggregators to deliver 800 watts out there. It's all class two and all that. So we're innovating in the powering side because we know we can go a long way with fiber. We got to be able to go a long way with copper. And so we're we're also doing a lot of power uh, on the powering side, we have to go a long way to edge devices in large buildings. So we're developed, we've developed a whole line of power solutions of all things. So there you go. Good. Mike, I want to, I want to answer uh, one more. You had asked this question earlier. One of your uh, listeners asked this question about smart building technologies. How often do you have to change them and upgrade them? It's very similar to your smartphone. How often do you have to upgrade them? You're not forced to upgrade your phone from eight years ago, but you want to because the newer phone has more features in it, right? Um, when I had the push button phone back 15 years ago, I didn't feel a need to upgrade that except the new one looks a little bit more sleeker. But with iPhone, I think the first iPhone 1, 90% of the applications today will not work on iPhone 1. So the processing power has changed. I remember I'm 57 years old. When I was growing up, my dad always liked Toyota Corolla. So I've seen how cars evolve, but they didn't change so much as they do now. I mean, now this, I think a friend of mine was telling me 35, 40% of the cost of a car is technology in there. It didn't used to be that way. Even the basic cars have a touch screen that, you know, you can do so many things with it. Sync your phone, do multiple things with it. You know, So those are, that's how I see the commercial buildings transforming. I see a, a typical on-off switch being replaced by a touchscreen, and it connects to your phone. That's what we're doing in our Sinclair Hotel. We have touchscreens in the bathroom and the guest room. That's what we did in New Haven at the Marcel project. And we are developing touchscreens of all sizes that are ethernet plug-in in the back. And we were able to, at Marcel project, eliminate a physical thermostat which is about a $300 piece of hardware and bring it into the touchscreen, into the room control. So the temperature is displayed there. So because once everything is on a network from your lighting to your air conditioning, to your exhaust fans, then you have one central screen that can just switch, oh, yeah, switch okay. between those screens and do everything. That's the future. Yes, absolutely. Um, I wanna shift gears real quick because we have about five minutes before Chuck comes in and cuts us off. Um, Eugenie, one more question back to you, um, talking about kind of what your next steps are. Do you or plan to uh, correlate the occupancy space utilization data with energy use for tenant comfort? I'm guessing more like, hey, I know someone's coming into this space. I was only expecting two people. Now there's 10 and we turn the fans on. 
Are you looking to do that? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's sort of the, the beauty of this data. So there are so many different use cases. So we're definitely looking at how we can optimize the energy use, but we are also looking at things like optimization of cleaning schedules. So if you know a certain floor is not getting as much usage, maybe we can adjust the cleanings accordingly. Uh, things like cafeteria. So if we can provide um, that utilization data to our cafeteria staff, then they can help manage food wastage um, or, you know, maybe not have as many stations open. Um, uh, occupancy comfort is another one. So, yeah, that's that's what the nice thing about this data is that there are so many more use cases we can leverage it for. And is it opt-in or are you picking up any guests that would come in just based off their Wi-Fi or their Bluetooth? Um, Anyone who has a corporate device. Um, Oh, the corporate so, device only? Corporate device, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Very interesting. Um, Chuck, I'm going to call you back here. Okay. I'm back. There he is. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think we, we we have a little bit more time. Mark, I don't know if uh, we heard enough from you. We've got another minute or two if you're... If I, I actually... I have another question for Mark. I, I thought I thought we were out of time. I apologize. No, we got we got a few minutes. So, but I I love coming on camera. So uh, if you call me, I'm gonna be. Uh, I, Mark's got something to say. I know. No, well, no. I I thought I'm done for the day. I you know it, it's it's time for that umbrella drink for me now. No. <laughs> let me let me let me ask you a question, Mark. And my too. <laughs> um, it talks about it says I hear a lot about grid interactive buildings connecting to utility power. Is grid interactive a key part of smarter buildings? Is grid inter interactive important to achieving, uh, or, or is it important and achievable to building owners? Are you seeing that as we go to smarter? Yes, I'm beginning to, but I believe, again, like everything else, it's a journey and we are far from there. But I think the talk is increasing in and around that. And um, I think we'll get there, uh, for especially for some of the higher profile campuses, corporate campuses and buildings of those types. Uh, will we ever get there for the nondescript building that you have four of them on the corner, the same, same ones? Uh, that'll long time coming, long time coming. Well, and I, and I think too, it, it it's really a functionality of the utility company, right? And and Absolutely. what how are they willing to work? Because some markets, they're like in there, they're ready to go. Hey, we're gonna put this in. We'll connect it to your network. We'll show you data. Other ones are like, we don't know what you're talking about. We'll just give you power, right? So I think you're seeing an evolution, and maybe it's more in markets that need that power, right? So uh, West Coast and Hawaii, that you know, power is such more, more expensive. So it's almost anyway. like the you know, similar to demand response. We talked about that, and oh, it was gonna go nationwide here in North America, but obviously to your point, California, maybe some of the Northeast and so forth and, and so forth is where it really started to take off in the beginning, but the rest of the country was slow to adopt it. So, Mark, Mark, one more minute. Uh, you, you brought up ESG. My question on ESG, at least the way it is today, do you, uh, is the E seems really important. Uh, and non non-negotiable. The S, I'm not so sure about, and the G is waiting for some government uh, imposition. So I, I, 
I, I almost feel like the E is by far weighted more. Am I wrong about that? Are they equally weighted? Well, it, it depends who you ask. If you're asking me and our industry, of course, the E is uh, heavily weighted. But what we do on the E part will have some effect on the S part and will have some effect on the G part. Because if you recall, as far as data governance, the whole idea about governance, part of the things that we're gonna have to do for the E part, once they get an agreed uh, approach for metrics and you know how we're gonna judge this and everything else, is that they're gonna have to have the governance behind that to prove that you're not greenwashing and so forth. But right. I agree with you. It's we're in the E part right now, so. All right, well, you know, I think we probably a good place to wrap it up. I will tell all of the participants who asked questions, I've already saved them all off onto another document and I'll send those out to the group and they can respond directly to the individuals. So uh, you, your questions won't get lost and, and they were all very valuable and we thank you a lot for having that opportunity. So thank you again for that. And thanks, Michael, for, for moderating. You know, uh, Realcom really can't do these things by themselves. And I certainly don't want to moderate every every webinar. I would get kind of boring. I, I, so I really do appreciate you guys doing that. And uh, thanks to our panelists, because your valuable contributions to today's session are just fantastic. Uh, the recording uh, will also uh, be played many, many times for people, and they'll be able to take advantage of that. So. Again, for our live audience and for those watching this as a recording, we thank you for tuning in and be sure to register for the next webinar in our next gen smart building series. And that's smart, smarter building operations. It's taking everything you heard today and hearing a lot more about uh, the, the data component. It's leveraging data and analytics. So we'll get a lot deeper into that piece. So I do encourage you to tune into that. That's airing one week from today on July 21st. So, uh, that's it for us. Uh, again, thank you all. Uh, we wish you all well. Be safe. And thank you uh, for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks, all. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.